are live from the empire of lies. It's time for the show that brings you the truth behind the headlines on a license of free speech, open debate, and great conversation in the vast wasteland that is the new world order under Joe Biden. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this is The Backstory. So we've got a great show today. We've been having great shows all week, and today is no exception. In the wake of the murder of Daria Dugina, we have Mark Sabora, who's known Daria for years, and we'll be talking about her and her father, Alexander Dugan, who Mark also knows, with Mark Sabora coming up this hour. Then next hour, we have the great Tom Nichols, writer, and we'll be talking about political goings on in Pennsylvania. Dr. Oz and his race, and also Larry Krasner, the Soros-appointed DA, who they're trying to investigate, but there's pushback, and I'll relate that to the pushback to the Soros-appointed DA in Florida that we've been talking about a little bit. We'll be talking to Tom next hour. And of course, we're taking your calls, 202-521-1320. This is the backstory. Before we get going, let's say hi to our producer, Rod. How you doing, Rod? Doing well, Lee. Can't complain. How about yourself? I'm doing okay. And actually, I'm feeling pretty good today. But let me say something. Uh, I want. I, I said it before, but I'll say it again. I really appreciate everyone who's a listener and everyone who works at Sputnik for the support with the health problems I've had. And we'll have talk about more health problems that Fetterman's had. And because the Fetterman is running for the same seat that Oz is, and he's the Democrat, and he's had a stroke recently. Right, Rod? Yeah, back-to-back strokes. Yes. And, of course, I understand that. But I really appreciate the support we've had from everyone. And let me tell you, I'm working on stuff and making sure that this is the show to listen to, the backstory. Now, and making sure it continues that way for some time to come. Do you know who I talked to today? I talked to Gonzalo Lira. Of course, we've talked about Gonzalo before, but I'd never spoken to him before. And Rod, you've seen Gonzalo's stuff, of course. Oh, yeah, I've seen him over the years, yeah. And Gonzalo is just as nice a guy and just as informed and interesting a guy in person as he is on his shows, his various podcasts, including his new one, The Roundtable. And Mark Sloboda has been on The Roundtable a couple times. He's our guest today. But Gonzalo, I'm going to be a guest on The the Roundtable. And I'm going to steal a line from uh, Mark. I am, I, I forget his line now. I'm honored, and I forget what else he says. I'm happy to be on Gonzalo's show coming up. So I'll announce that when I have a former date and tell you about it. And hopefully we can get Gonzalo on our show, too. But it was a pleasure to talk to him today. I just wanted to mention, everyone, 
I had a chance to talk to him. So we got Sabota coming up in 10 minutes. Is that right, Rod? That's correct. Okay. I'm just double checking because sometimes I screw that up. When we mark on, he generally comes on at a quarter after the hour, but just making sure. So the headlines going on. One thing I know is, is the redacted warrant for the Mar-a-Lago raid has come out. Did you see that, Rod? I was looking for it because uh, now that's what people were waiting for. And uh, there was people outside, the, you know, there were news were, were parked outside the courtroom and all that. But I hadn't seen it. Did you, did, you get, did you get a chance to look at it? No, no. Let me, forgive me. I, I sort of misspoke. It's been issued by the judge, but now a judge is determining whether it should be public. So the judge has given him, the other judge, a redacted memo. That's what I meant. The redacted memo is at the judge, and now the judge is deciding how much should be released to the public. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, and that's what, you know, we're on East Coast time, so I guess it's until the next hour, I guess. That's when the courts close, I guess around 5 o'clock, 5, 6 o'clock. So now, until- yeah, and uh, what do you think of what's going on there, Rod? What do you think is happening, and what do you think we've learned so far definitively from the information we've gotten about the raid rod i think they're they're trying to and we talked about it uh in in the days after this raid lee uh, i think they're trying to hide as much of this information that'll implicate russia because this is what it's all about they're saying you know they were looking for documents that relate to russia and trump's uh Still, I mean, the word still exists, colluding and collusion with uh, Russia. Um, so that's what I think they're trying to redact and, and put it out there. I think it's probably going to be 85 percent redacted. So it's going to look really stupid to have all this blacked out material. No, I, I agree. And they're still pushing the Trump Russia narrative. And it's insane. But they they can't let it go in a sense, especially now that Ukraine is in a war, which Joe Biden yesterday, another $3 billion for Ukraine. We didn't, I think we mentioned in passing, but think about that. They cannot back off on the Trump-Russia narrative. Do you agree, Rod? They backed themselves in the corner. Yeah, you know, they're, they're stuck on stupidly and they can't, they can't shift gears. Um, so yeah, I mean, what you're going to start hearing now, and, and I don't know if you saw uh, Hillary Clinton and Chelsea Clinton are having like some type of, uh, I think it's on Apple TV, some type of show where they're like with other celebrities doing these uh, type of activities. I think they're going to try, they're going to rerun Hillary Clinton. I, I don't, they're trying to re revive it. Now Bradley Cooper's dating Huma Abedin. So they're bringing Hollywood back into this Clinton circle to present it to you. Like, no, 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 she's a good option. Yes. I, I've never thought Hillary Clinton was out of politics. You'd think many people would leave politics, having been rejected by the public so soundly. But now the other thing that's going on today, and we'll talk about it at the top of the hour more. Uh, and by the way, we're taking your calls at the top of the hour, 202-521-1320. That's when we'll have time for them. But you know what I've noticed? A term that's been redefined is healthcare. You know, 
in the Roe v. Wade debate, abortion is one form of health care, right? Now, the baby doesn't think so, but okay. They're defining abortion as health care. And what they're doing, there was a court decision today, and I think it's Arkansas, that had a law that they're trying to pass that would stop these transgender surgeries on minors. But I noticed on the news, do you know what it's called if you give a 16-year-old a, a hormones to block their, uh, I don't even know medically what it is, but the hormones, when they're blocked, do you, do you know what's actually being blocked there, Rod? Puberty. Wait, say it again. Okay. Well, well, and it blocks. So that's healthcare. That's what the news is telling me. They're calling it gender affirming healthcare. And I would say is not gender affirming. I would say, and this will sound, this will be controversial. I would call it gender denying. Agreed? Yeah, no, I, I agree totally, Lee. This, this stuff is insane. And, uh, you know, the, the only people who come out and defend it uh, are the politicians and, and, and any government doctors. You don't see, like, private doctors or you don't see much of that because they don't want to be the face of it and they don't want to, you know, so the it's the government pushing it. But it's I don't see any, you know, the doctors of uh, South Florida, the doctors of uh, Central Arkansas, or, you know, we're not coming to get, you know, they're not, you're not seeing that push from, from that organic push. Right. But it's a very disturbing uh, redefinition. And it goes along with the broad thing we've been seeing all throughout this administration and of redefining things. Like recession isn't recession, right? So we lose GDP for two quarters, and now it's not what that is is apparently it's economy reaffirming losses. I don't know what the Biden administration would call it. But what they're calling gender, I'm old enough where in the old days, if you wanted to get your gender affirmed with the doctor, they'd say, pull down your pants. And it would take about two seconds. they go, okay, look at that, you're a dude or you're a lady. And that was the, the affirmation. Although, some people, have you seen the people who say, I forget who, who said it specifically, but I remember the quote that basically doctors guess. Have you seen that quote where they said doctors guess about people's gender? No, I never, I never, I haven't seen that one, Lee. Yeah, what, what they're saying was a doctor guesses. Now, what that means is, you know, whatever parts you have, they guess because they need to know what's in your mind. They need to know how you feel about the parts you have. And that, to me, is the opposite of gender affirming. But we have Mark on, so let's go to a short break now, Rod. When we come back, I'm looking forward to the great Mark Sloboda on The Backstory.
are back on the backstory and joined from Moscow by the great geopolitical analyst and constant frequent guest, not constant, but constant guest somewhere. He's always making appearances and they're always making you smarter. Mark Sabota. How you doing, Mark? Lee, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the backstory. So, Mark, I want to say I thought of you first when I heard Daria uh, Dugana was killed, was assassinated. I thought of you. You were the first person I thought of, Mark. And so I want to say to you, because I always like having you on a show, but I'm really sorry for your loss, too. Because how long have you known Daria and how long have you known Alexander Dugana? Um, about eight or nine years. Eight or yeah, uh, nine, even 10 years, 10 years, I guess. It's, I guess it's 10 years. Yeah, that was my guess, about 10 years. So probably since she was like 19 years old, a teenager, yes. basically. Yes. So, so you know, you know, it's shocking anybody anyway, but I can't imagine having known her so long. And since she was a teenager, what? And, and so first off, uh, how are you doing? Um. Well, I mean, uh, I'm uh, at this point more concerned, of course, uh, uh, about the family. Um, their loss yes. is uh, much greater than mine. Um, I've, I uh, was a colleague of Alexander Dugan's. Uh, I taught um, in the uh, sociology uh, faculty of Moscow State University alongside of him. That's uh, where I met him and uh, how I met his uh, daughter. Um, and um you know uh we uh, we were colleagues but we were also friends and um i w- would never say that i agreed with everything the man said uh, uh has said uh you know or said particularly in the distant past um but then again i don't agree with anyone every anyone with everything um and it's fair to say that uh alexander dugan today doesn't agree with the Alexander Dugan of 30 years ago either. Um, you know, we've all gone through our political evolution. Mea culpa, I, I once campaigned to make John Kerry president of the United States. So um, obviously we How all go through out? our... Yeah, it, it didn't work out so well. Um, uh, George go. Bush got reelected. Yeah, we got reelected. So I'm, I'm not so sure that now that Kerry would have been any better. But, you know, hey... <laughs> Uh, like I said, uh, youthful, youthful uh, indiscretions and uh, confusion and so forth. Uh, so but um, uh, Daria was, uh, you know, she was f- following in her father's footsteps. I, I guess, you know, I got to see her grow into the woman, the young woman that she became before she was uh, snuffed out in this cold blooded uh, uh, terrorist attack and assassination she was following in her father's footsteps to a degree. Uh, she had just finished her um, uh, doctorate uh, in philosophy. Um, she was, you know, she also uh, did work as as a political activist, uh, as a journalist. She was a war correspondent in the Donbass, um, which is probably where she drew the ire of the neo-Nazis, because just uh, recently she reported from Azovstal, um, where she interviewed uh, people from Mariupol who had been held in the uh, torture dungeons uh, beneath the Azovstal steel factory there. 
that uh, the Azov neo-Nazis had kept. So she uh, particularly became a, a hated target of them. And there's a lot of disinformation. Uh, I mean, the Western mainstream media has just continually been a sea of disinformation about Dugan and about his daughter. And and there is enough controversy uh, in the man's, you know, um, political evolution and intellectual pedigree that they do not need to do what they've done in creating a, a caricature bogeyman out of him and simultaneously exaggerating his importance and uh, influence in in Russia. And it has to be said, I mean, I respect the man, you know, whatever disagreements uh, I have had with him, they've always been, um, you know, on, on an intellectual or methodological basis. Um, but um, uh, he was not he was a marginal figure. He is a marginal. Maybe, maybe now he will not be a marginal figure. I mean, this might give him uh, renewed attention. Um and if so, that's something the West will very much come to regret. Um, but um, he um, he is a marginal figure at best, you know, him and, and his daughter both, because she was, you know, uh, very much um, his his legacy, his his living legacy. Um, it's presented in the Western <laughs> media as if he is Putin's brain. Right. Uh, that he is yes. the 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 uh, responsible for the Kremlin's ideology and is the architect of the Ukrainian and of the uh, intervention. What do they call it? The invasion of Ukraine. Um, nothing could be further from the truth there. Um, and, and this is a really salacious of the Western media. They try to blow him up into some type of bogeyman, exaggerate his importance, and then use that to tar Putin. And it's all just ridiculous. I mean, I, I want to be on the record here because I've, I've known him for you know the last decade. I had a lot of conversations with, with the man, with his daughter. He has ne him, neither him nor his daughter ever met or spoke with Putin before, well, uh, three days ago when his uh, daughter was, or three or four days ago when his daughter was killed. Um, he uh, Putin never once mentioned his name or any of his unique ideas, uh, you know, that that he is known for, where he advanced, uh, you know, uh, his um, uh, political ideas of the Eurasianists that have come before him. He never, never once. Um, and Putin is very much an anti ideologue. Right. He's extremely pragmatic. And it's fair to say cold blooded, um, in, you know, in in his pursuit of, of Russians, uh, you know, a national interest and, and the interests of the Russian people. He doesn't like being tied down by ideology. He, he regards that as as a mistake. Um, so um, and in, in fact, fact let, me, let me stop you one sec, Mark. Let me ask you about ideology, because something that's come up in the past few days that I wasn't aware of before I, I started studying I use this to start studying the ideas of Alexander Dugan. And I've been reading his book, The Fourth Political Fairy. And yesterday on the show, we played the 2017 interview Alex Jones did, because I want people to hear from Dugan himself directly. Yes. Because of yeah, all he the. He speaks pretty good English. Yes, indeed he does. And he also seems to speak uh, Arabic. He, he speaks like a dozen languages, and he. 
I remember once he was going to do a speech in Greece um, and um, I talked to him and then the next week and then um, he, I, you know, he uh, mentioned uh, something about the speech he was delivering and said that he was delivering it in Greek. And I said, I didn't know you knew Greek. And he said, I didn't last week. <laughs> that, that's the kind of, uh, uh, you know, a man that he was. He really was a, a genius, a polyglot. You know, I mean, there's always a, you know, a fine line, as they say, uh, you know, uh, but um, yeah, he was uh, incredible. Uh, and his daughter very much followed her in his footsteps with that. She spoke several languages fluently as well. Uh, she was a big lover of French culture and the French language and so forth. And uh, I might mention I translated the fourth political theory into English uh, when I was uh, at Moscow State University. So I really I, I, I hope it was under understandable to you. Some of the ideas in there, I, I would admit they're not. They're they're not for the layman. Um, he drew he drew well, very heavily on some complicated philosophical ideas of Heidegger and others in that book. Uh, so it's not exactly uh, an easy read. And that's what I was going to say. The thing that struck me about, about his work and listening to a lot of interviews with him is that he is an academic intellectual, not oh yeah, primarily. When we have you on, Mark, a lot of times we talk about practical politics. It seems yeah. to me that the thing he writes about fundamentally is not practical politics. And that oh, yeah, he's a, he's an idea guy, not a policy guy. Very much so. Right. Yeah. So you, you agree with my my understanding Absolutely. of it. And yep. and that's where Putin would be. He can't people. What people care about from a politician is, is my pension going to go up or down or what policy are you going to do about this practical thing? They don't want to hear Putin get up there and say, well, here's what Heidegger said in uh, Time and Being. Yeah. That would be very confusing. Right? Yes, it would be. Yeah, yeah, Yes, it would be. And that's probably, you know, lays to the the you know reality that that uh, Dugan was not a big you know uh, political influence and and certainly was not a policy influence. Uh, he had no influence over Putin. He had no influence over the government or its foreign policy. And it, it has to be said, in 2014, when the the uh, con when the uh, the Ukrainian government was first overthrown in the U.S. backed Maidan Putsch, and the civil conflict broke out in Ukraine, um, you know, Alexander Dugin was very strident in his criticism of the new regime, particularly after the Odessa massacre, when when the uh, anti-Maidan activists were burned alive uh, by, uh, you know, these uh, neo-Nazi uh, protesters or, you know, um, rioters, whatever you want to call them uh, in Odessa. And uh, at that time, uh, the, the Putin administration had, you know, they were backing they were helping the people of Donbass, you know, with funding and training and arming to a degree, just like, you know, the West was doing with the new regime they helped install uh, in Kiev. Uh, but they were only doing so much. They were signaling to the West that their, you know, their aspirations were here were limited, limited. Um, and they only gave the people uh, there uh, enough to defend themselves, not to expand their territory, because they wanted to push the Minsk Accords and with a political reconciliation between the Putsch regime in Kiev and the people of East Ukraine. And Dugan thought that was naive. 
he he thought and uh, uh, history may have proven him right over Putin in the, in this regard. Uh, but um, he thought it was naive and appeasement of the West, um, particularly after Odessa. Um, and the Putin administration pushed to have him removed from his teaching position at Moscow State University and also basically made him informally persona non grata on Russian media, where he had been a fixture on the, you know, um, uh, political uh, talk shows uh, and the like, often as an agent provocateur. And for years afterwards, Dugan only ever appeared on the, the private channel of a uh, very um, orthodox businessman, Zargrad, and uh, that's the only place he appeared. So he was not even I mean, I've also seen him referred to as Putin's ally. No, I mean, he actually wrote a book heavily criticizing Putin called Putin against Putin uh, that that talked about Putin's contrary impulses um, and how he often would fall back on Western appeasement. They were they weren't enemies. Right. They weren't, uh, you know, polar opposites necessarily, but they he had no influence in the Kremlin and they were by no means allies. Um, they they occasionally agreed on things and they frequently disagreed on things. And Putin, I don't even know if he knew that Dugan, you know, really existed because the entirely different levels of of, uh, you know, politics and power uh, in the country. So I, I'm just there's so much disinformation uh, about him. He's also referred to as a nationalist and an ultra nationalist, which is also like 100 percent wrong. Dugan was uh, a Eurasianist. He believed that Russia needed to turn its back on the West and embrace its own, the East and its own inner East, the different ethnicities and cultures of Central Asia and the Caucasus. I mean, that's what Eurasianism is all about. It's the exact opposite of ethnic nationalism. So, I mean, I think the word that you use to describe a person who supports their country but doesn't hate people of different races and ethnicities in the U.S. is called a patriot, right? I mean, isn't that yes. isn't that the word they use? Yeah. Yes. So unlike, say, Azov or you know um, uh, the right sector or these other things or the you know the people uh, the I, if you want to call them intellectuals behind those groups, uh, I would hesitate to use that word in that regard. But the fascist thinkers, and I know some of those people too, uh, uh, you know, behind the regime uh, in Kiev. Um, but I mean, Alexander Dugin, uh, you know, it certainly in that regard was 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 a polar opposite, and Daria even more so. Um, Daria uh, loved French culture, uh, uh, radical French politics, the Paris cafe scene. Um, it's it just uh, completely different from the way the man is portrayed. He's portrayed as some kind of Rasputin-like manipulative firebrand. And he was actually, I mean, you've seen the video. He's actually a very earnest, soft-spoken man. Um, and as an American, when I have someone that I politically disagree with, born an American anyway, my first impulse is to mix it up, right? To go to to go to town on what I believe and to to crossfire style argue, right? He is not like that at all. The first thing he would try to do is identify it rationally the things that you agree on, and then use that to examine the things you disagree on. And there was, you know, like no animosity. He, in some ways, except for the influence, is kind of like the Russian polar opposite of Zbigniew Brzezinski. 
who was an anti-Russian. Uh, he was actually Carter's national security advisor. And the two of them actually met and spoke once. And they had a very civil intellectual conversation. So, um, again, this firebrand, fire-breathing, uh, I mean, it's amazing. Azov Dugan and his daughter, Daria, are fascists, right? But Azov and the right sector, uh, they're Ukrainian patriots, right? That's, that's the kind of upside-down, white-is-black you know, uh, um, a world of of the media of the disinformation, where the meme becomes the reality that we're living in. Well, that that meeting between Dugan and Zbigniew Rzynski, I want to ask you about that because they had a conversation about chess, and it really showed, I think, the difference between the approach of I'll call them the neocons, but U.S. foreign policy, and what Dugan believed. You, you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, I, you obviously have a, a, a very interesting perspective on it. You tell me what you think about it, and then I'll tell you what I think about it. Well, well, what the what he's what Brzezinski said, Dugan basically said that chess is a game for two, and Brzezinski said no, it's not. Chess is a game for one, and yeah. that's a very interesting statement. And the interesting statement to me, the thing I noticed about that. Is it saying we don't care what anyone else thinks, and that is U.S. foreign policy? So, yeah. what's your take? Yeah. That is, that is, that, that is a, a I think that is a very good uh, way of of looking at a lot of the differences. And like I said, Dugan has gone through a lot of his evolution of, of political evolution in his his days, um, and and he doesn't he's discounted a lot of the things that he believed when he was a young radical. But I mean, his big for the last 15, 20 years, um, he has very much been uh, he's against U.S. led Western hegemony. And he's very much in pursuit of a multipolar world, right, where he celebrates um, other uh, cultures and civilizations and thinks that they all should be represented um, on the the global political uh, stage. Uh, whereas, you know, the U.S. Of, and under Brzezinski certainly believes that they are the hegemon, the unipolar power that everyone in the world would be better off if they just learn to, um, you know, live like Americans or at least do what Americans say if you can't live like them, you know, um, that, that. And I've noticed it, a lot of American when a lot of American analysts look at it, one of the ways to get his ideas wrong and all of Russia's ideas wrong is Russia does not want a unipolar world that Russia is in charge of. Oh, no, no. They, I mean, they're I think they're more realistic right? in their their even, you know, the 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 most expansive Russian geopolitical they realize that Russia has, you know, more limited geopolitical horizons than the Soviet Union. It never extends beyond the Eurasian space other than being one of the they they view like that Russia, China, Iran and others are going to be the principal countries to give birth to the multipolar world. And in that they need to counter, you know, uh, U.S. hegemonic impulses. But, yeah, there is there is no belief that Russia should, uh, that it can or should or, or will rule the world or be the police of the world or be the judge of the world. There is none of that. 
No, I agree. Now, I want to talk to you more about Dugan's ideas, and you're obviously an ideal person to talk to about this. But first, I want to talk about Daria. What's, on a personal basis, what memory of Daria Dugan do you have in the wake of this tragic loss, Mark? What struck you about her? I, I, I mean, just on a personal note, I mean, one of the the the, the biggest memories I have of her is just a a pleasant uh, afternoon picnic that I had uh, with their family. So, I mean, that's that's nothing, um, you know, uh, no, it's ground exactly, shaking right there. Yesterday, we talked to John Mark Dugan, the American journalist, and he told us a story about how he was on a bus with Daria and she kept giving everyone on the bus her meat from her lunch because she's not eating, wasn't eating meat. Apparently, it was an orthodox thing, Lent or something like that. Yeah, that's it. I mean, that's a, a great anecdote. I mean, and she was at the same time, she was, uh, you know, she followed in her, in her father's religious footsteps. Not only was he orthodox, but he was an old believer, uh, which is, you know, uh, kind of very much an archaic set of of orthodox beliefs. But at the same time, she was very, let me put it this way, she was not aggressive in, neither one of them were aggressive in their religious, uh, you know, beliefs. They did not believe that they should impose or proselytize their beliefs on anyone else. It's always something private. And, you know, the orthodox, um, you know, uh, have a, a very strict, uh, fasting regimen, and for the old believers, it's even more so. Uh, so that's no surprise uh, at all to me. But uh, again, this was is, is something that she, you know, that she and he both did, you know, privately or with other celebrants. But it was never. I mean, I myself, um, I'm just not an uh, Orthodox or or any, you know, uh, monotheist belief system. You and I work beside secular. Yeah, I'm secular. I mean, I I, I think Probably. I have some, yeah, some some nature related, vaguely spiritual, you know, feelings. I might say nothing, nothing formal. Uh, but never once did that man or his daughter ever pressure me that I was not orthodox or that I should believe what they did. And I, I worked, you know, you know, for for a couple of years beside him on a daily basis, um, you know, out of the same office. So um, it, it, it's just but not I, like I, that. I asked all. John yesterday, I asked John Mark Dugan yesterday if he thought that Dugan's beliefs are giving him some solace in the wake of this horrible loss. And he said, yes, he thinks so. And I, that's my impression. That the fact that Daria was Orthodox and the fact that Dugan is a Christian, at least we can take some solace in that he's comforted by the beliefs right now in this tragic moment. Do you agree with that, Mark? Sure. I mean, uh, it, it, his religion is something that that not only does he wear on his sleeves, but is very much a, a part of his heart in its modest way, right? Um, so um, I I certainly hope. That, that is true because um, I, I've, you know, I've seen him uh, since then, 
Um, I mean, not uh, privately, but I, I've seen him at the funeral, and he is uh, shaken. I mean, um, he uh, had uh, some cardiac problems immediately because, I mean, he saw her. He was in the car directly behind, yes. and he saw her blown up before his eyes. And uh, he, uh, it, it appears, had some cardiac problems from the shock uh, immediately afterwards. And he looks older and frail. I mean, to be honest, his hands were shaking. Um, and I think that during the funeral, he said, uh, you know, he re referred, of course, to, to current events and, you know, what seems to be obvious that, you know, being on the Kiev regime's Miratvoritz uh, uh, assassination list, uh, both him and his daughter, that, you know, this is exactly what happened. And with the evidence that the FSB has put forward, the videos of, of, of the person that was definitely involved in it and, and very specifically was targeting Daria. I mean, renting out uh, uh, an apartment for a month, uh, uh, an apartment in the same building as Daria in order to surveil her. Um, but um, at the funeral, Dugan said, we are at war in Ukraine, but we are not at war with Ukraine. Um, and that strike me as, you know, very poignant for a man who, you know, as most humans must be feeling a base impulse towards vengeance uh, at this point. I mean, that that is a very human thing, I think. I know I certainly would. And so I, I think in that respect, he's probably a, a better man than me. But I'll tell you something that not a lot of people know. The Dugan family, their historical roots are actually from Ukraine. Uh, the Dugan family comes from Poltava in Ukraine. Uh, so really? um, it's fair to say that he's probably actually historically more Ukrainian than he is Russian. That's very interesting. Now, John told us yesterday that the funeral had a turnout that was, he said, like a rock star, a huge turnout. You were at the memorial. Is that accurate? I, it was pretty large. It was pretty large. It was larger than I have ever seen at any of his political gatherings or meetings. So I think a lot of people turned out you know, not only his his followers, not only his you know friends and family, but a lot of Russians who just saw didn't maybe didn't know who Daria Dugin or even who Alexander Dugin was before, but they know that a young, pretty, charming, brilliant young twenty nine year old woman was uh, you know brutally uh, killed in a terrorist uh, attack and assassination in the capital city. Um, and uh, there is uh, a grief, uh, you know, that comes with that. I mean, people are dying. Russians are dying. Ukrainians are dying on both sides of this conflict. But this is something else entirely. This is a direct, targeted, cruel, politically motivated attack against a, uh, a what could only be said, whether you agree with her, you know, on political ideas or not. And Again, she was not an offensive person by any stretch of the imagination, no matter how much Kiev propaganda might try to present it otherwise. Uh, but to, to justify killing a civilian, an academic like that, as I've seen uh, a lot of attempts at equivocation by Western journalists that I find just absolutely repulsive. And I just like to say that what this shows right now is that all all the masks, all the rhetoric of values and 
human rights and everything, all the masks are off now. Right. They 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 they've just been cast aside and everything that that I've read, the attempt to slur him and his daughter, even as they're reporting their death in, you know, um, uh, either the approving or the mildest of token condemnation terms, um, you know, the, 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 the what they might think of as the requisite. It's vile. It's it's just vile. And it, now, it more speaks to me of of the rightness that a regime that would do this needs needs to go for the for the good of the and, Ukrainian people, if no one else. And humanity, maybe. But, Mark, do you think that the West was behind this in any way? Because I do. I personally think yeah. this this is a Western operation. Not to I, this first woman of all, was Western. I, yeah. First of all, I'd like to say that I put a lot of the blame on the Western media because they are responsible for blowing up Dugan, uh, both, you know, as this bogeyman and exaggerating his importance where he was seen as a target that would then have political value, right, of, of a victory, def- killing the architect. It doesn't make any difference that none of that was true. And whoever ordered the killing probably knew that. But it's the perception in people's minds because we're living in this postmodern disinformation world now where the meme is the reality. Um, And that's a very frightening place. What is the precedent now? Is everyone who supported the Iraq war, and I'm certainly not one of them in the United States now, a legitimate target? For, for people from from other countries, I mean, is 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 that you know any academic who supported it, any any uh, you know um, a political uh, commentarist or or philosopher, right? Are are they? Is Bernard Henry Levy now a legitimate target for uh, killing? Is is that the world that we that the new Cold War slash hot war is already moving into? Because that's a very frightening place. Um, I, was well, the U.S. directly agree. involved? Okay. I do not believe that this could have occurred, considering that the CIA had an office in Kiev and operated, we know from Ukrainian sources, out of the top of, you know, the SBU's building itself. I, I do not believe that it could have been done without at least a green light by the CIA. I don't. But I don't have any. I mean, that, that's speculation at this point. No, no, I certainly agree with that. Ukraine, certainly the Ukrainian military can't do anything. They can't even we know the Washington Post said that the Ukrainian military can't even fire a HIMARS without getting uh, U.S. approval. So do we believe that that they're capable of, of conducting a political assassination with a, at least getting a pass, a green light? Um, and this Miratvorets hit list of the Ukrainian government of enemies of the state that the Dugans, that John Mearsheimer, the U.S. Uh, uh, political uh, international relations scholar of realism, that Roger Waters, that Glenn Greenwald, uh, that the, the former German Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder, that are all on this kill list with their names and addresses and thousands of journalists um, and Ukrainian journalists who have already been killed and liquidated. Um, and Daria Dugan's entry has now been marked across that with a big liquidated in Ukrainian written across her face, you know, gloating. Um, I I don't that 
Miratwaret's hit list is run off of NATO servers. <laughs> it's run out of Brussels. Uh, NATO. Uh, I think it's .cgn.net, something of the sort. So take that for what it's worth. Yes. Yeah. No. That's a that's an important point. Now let's talk about Dugan's ideas a little. His major work is the fourth political theory. Correct. Would you say that's his major work? It's his major work of the last twenty year of the last twenty of the last fifteen years. Certainly, uh, he wrote a much earlier book that at the time had greater influence in the nineties, and I think actually got a lot of things wrong. But I mean, got a lot of things right too. That was the foundation of geopolitics. That was actually in the '90s was probably the high point of his still marginal influence in Russia. But he's written so many books. But the fourth political theory is his most important recent work. That's for sure. So let me talk about what I take away from reading it so far, and then you can correct me and say it in a nice fancy way. So <laughs> my understand we. Yeah, because you, you you obviously know the material better. But it seems to me he's saying the 20th century had three political ideologies, liberalism, communism, and fascism. And that it's time, obviously, with the failures of those systems that we've seen in providing for people, you need a new political ideology. And his starting point yeah. is by looking at those political ideologies. And as you, you said, he takes the balanced approach. So he doesn't say communism's wrong and here's why they're idiots. He, in fact, goes into an analysis where he says, let's look at these ideologies and try to find what's good about them and what's right about them so we can find the good stuff to, to fold into this fourth political, this new political ideology that we're formulating. Is that essentially right, Mark? Yeah, I think you got it. You you got it. You know, I mean, the whole first part of the book down down to a T that all of the major political theories, the three major ones that that dominated the 20th century, you know, modernity, as as we call it, uh, have failed that, that, that they they have all, you know, uh, collapsed, uh, you know, due to events and their own internal contradictions at this point and that we need to look for something new. And we need to to look through the rubble of these political theories to sort through it to see why, where they failed, what they failed, you know, what we can take out of that rubble in the construction of something new for the, you know, the 21st century. And the first thing he does is is definitely talk about what they did wrong. And for instance, uh, with with fascism, which despite the idea that uh, that you know. Azov and 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 um, right sector they're fa are not fascists they're Ukrainian patriots but but Dugan of course is a fascist he says fascism was an evil and the racism uh, and and the aggression that characterized uh, fascism particularly you know not under Nazi Germany but also you know in the other countries including Western Ukraine that it became prominent in um, you know is 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 something that is completely you know irredeemable it's it's you know the the, the worst most base of human impulses so I, I only wish that 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 people who often mischaracterize him would actually draw from some of his quotes from his own work and you would see how uh, ridiculous these are uh, but 
I think where the book gets more complicated is then where it talks about what the basis, the primary unit of thoughts for the, the a new political theory. I it's it's intellectually interesting, uh, but I think it's it's beyond. I know it's not beyond most of the listeners of the backstory because they're pretty elevated people, right, Lee? Uh, you know, they Aside listen to me. you after all. Yeah, well, okay. Um, but I mean, I well, the first time I read through it, I struggled with it. That's for sure. I had to 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 put it down. You know, I was translating it, pick up some other books, and say, "What the hell is he talking about here?" I don't know who half of these French philosophers are that he's that he's referencing here, and and so forth. Uh, but you know, it's again, you don't have to agree with every conclusion in the book, but I think it's definitely worth reading. And if you want to, then. There's a, a book that comes off of it then that then takes the lessons of that into something that's much closer to me, which is international relations. And his next book then is Theory of a Multipolar World that comes off of that. And I think if you read Fourth Political Theory, you should definitely read Theory of a Multipolar World, too, with your interest in you know foreign, foreign affairs. Well, I think the, the the importance of his work now, and and you you said stuff. I want to see if you agree with this. I think the importance of his work now it provides a framework because a lot of people are asking themselves what comes after. People are seeing that this is a fight against the new world order, and he talks a lot about globalism and liberalism. Do you see globalism and liberalism as? Not exactly the same thing, but essentially the same thing. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm not. I'm never quite sure exactly what globalism is as as an ideology. I know what postmodern liberalism is. I know what the extension of Americans' supposedly liberal values into a neoliberal globalization is. Um, I, I think that when people talk about globalism, that's probably more what they mean in more academic terms, which is neoliberal globalization. And and when the book is published, I noticed about 30 pages in, he starts talking about the, the reason, without referring to current events, because it was not predicting the future, but— we in America right now are dealing with a lot of trans issues, for instance. We talked on the show before, at the beginning of the show, before it came on, about the idea that gender-affirming means giving minors surgery to stop puberty. And I don't consider that gender-affirming. And Dugan actually makes reference to what he sees, I think, as the reason— those issues come up. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about, Mark? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, 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 it's no question. Dugan is, you know, he's an Orthodox believer, um, and uh, he definitely uh, thinks that that postmodern liberalism is going off on some vast sociological experiment that he really wants no part of. But at the same time, he's not the type of person that would, you know. You know, like, say, U.S. ally Saudi Arabia call for, you know, uh, hanging uh, gays or transgender people from from, you know, uh, hanging them. <laughs> I mean, just I don't know where they hang them yes. from, but they 
they literally hang them to death. So um, he is, you know, more that he does not believe in this and he does not want to see it politically promoted in his country. But I think like most sensible people, he doesn't really care what two adult people do behind the doors of their bedrooms. Now, now another thing that I, I want your opinion, whether I'm getting this right, I think that he was saying in the book that liberalism was, in a sense, destined to fail, that there are internal problems that have led to some of the problems of liberalism. Is that accurate? Yeah, I mean, um, he definitely he identifies the, you know, the internal uh, contradictions of liberalism. And also, I mean, he part of what he does is he judges it according to its own professed value system and identify where it fails and where uh, particularly the political characterization of liberalism has actually become its own form of totalitarianism uh, in in parts of the United States and, and the West. Um, and he does that, I, you know, I think from from an intellectual basis. But I, I, there's no question that he is a, you know, a political and a geopolitical opponent of uh, Western postmodern liberalism. Yes. And also, it seems to me that he is uh, essentially saying, see, I think the problem now for a lot of people in the world is it's clear that we're not at a point where we're ever going back. Russia has said that, but I don't think because we see this and you know explicitly combined with the new world order, combined with Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum, this is essentially a battle and I don't mean battle in a military sense. It's a battle of ideas and sure. I see that that those ideas of the of, for instance, the World Economic Forum are being rejected, and we see people like Christina Freeland, who's got connections to both Ukraine and the World Economic Forum, where they all come together. I think a lot of people see that things aren't like they are different, but they don't see the way forward. And I think his yeah. way is his book points to the way forward broadly. Yeah, he does. And that I the I think the way he points forward uh is that the the idea that there is one way forward, one uh ideology for humanity and that all people in the world need to adopt this value system and its political practices, how it's practiced in say the United States, this unipolarity of ideas is wrong and that the solution to that is a multiplicity right a multipolarism of ideas that what works in the united states or what evolved in the united states should not and cannot be imposed on say india or pakistan or russia for that matter and and, that and mark we're out of t we're out of time and it's nearly midnight in moscow so thanks for staying up with us but hopefully people do know and hopefully Alexander Dugan knows everyone I've spoken to about his daughter loved her. She was a lovely young woman. Everyone I've spoken to, people who've talked to her said that. Mark, it was great to have you on. Send our love to everyone there. And thanks so much for explaining a lot of this stuff. 
and I agree with you, people need to read Dugan in his own words and not interpretation. Let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about more issues on the backstory. Backstory on 105.5 FM, AM 1390, in AM and FM Radio, in Washington, D.C., the capital of the Empire of Lies. This is the Backstory. What a great interview with the highly intelligent human being, Mark Sloboda. Rod, what did you think of the interview with Mark? I thought that was great, and uh, it was a great honoring. Uh, you know, we've pretty much been honoring Daria's life all week, and uh, I think Mark did a great job as well. And I really have been enjoying Dugan's book, and we'll be talking about the ideas that are in, in the coming weeks because I think they're very, very important. And if you missed yesterday's show, go back and listen to that because we played a 50-minute interview that Alex Jones did with Alexander Dugan in 2017. And that Al Keller suggested to us, and we'll talk to Al Keller in a second. But that interview yesterday was absolutely fantastic. And you have to hear both of these guys. You know, the thing that struck me too, and I know you thought this, I thought Alex Jones came out very well in that interview too. You said to me, Alex sounded, you don't see, people call Alex Jones insane. See how anyone could listen to that interview yesterday and say how Sean sounded insane. Do you agree, Rod? Yeah, I agree, Lee. I mean, people might say he's, maybe he's talking a little too much. That's what they could say. But, um, you know, he's very clear. He's concise. He's factual. Nobody could say, oh, look, he's he's saying this and it's not true. Or And he played two clips of which I would say, and I, maybe you would agree, two crazy people in Nancy Pelosi and Maxine Waters not not even know what the hell they're talking about. Uh, well, Nancy Pelosi wasn't know what she's talking about with the F, saying the FBI is going to investigate Trump. So, no, she might yes. be drinking. But she, and she, she sure enough, she was right. Shocking. Now, coming up th- this hour, Tom Nichols, and we'll be talking about some issues that relate to this because they're Soros-related, because Soros has been buying up DA positions around the country. And now that conservative Americans are fighting back against that, the Soros DAs, I know, are fighting back. They're not going to be put out without a fight. And we'll talk to Tom Nichols about that. But we'll talk more about that later on the backstory. So we'll go to Al Killer first, right? Okay. So... 202-521-1320. Al Killer, you're on. Hey, so I wanted to make two points. Um, the first one is going to be uh, regarding the uh, Daria Dugina, the uh, the car bombing, and like the idea that like it had to be like authorized by the CIA or somebody. Um, I lived, I was stationed in Naples, Italy for three years, and that's what the mafia does is out there, the Camorra or the Sicilian mafia. They, that's their calling card is is car bombs. That's how they do it. And the Italian mafia in La, the La Cosa Nostra in New York 
outlawed it because too many civilian it's can you cause too many civilian casualties. So I don't it, it doesn't take like it doesn't take that type of planning to do something like that. But what I do see is the fact that it was a female. Anytime a female is involved in an act like that, it it makes you think, okay, maybe there is some type of like intelligent or at least some type of military training. Um, and it goes it goes back to um, so another point. Alex Jones brought up Operation Gladio. That's declassified, and I just think Ukraine is basically a modern Operation Gladio where. We trained up a whole, I mean, for eight years now, um, we've been training um, th- their military. We've been training their, basically their, you know, what we would look at as militias in the United States. We, we've been training people. And then, I mean, it, it, but I don't think it really takes that type of authorization to do something like that. I, I think that maybe um, Mark may have been um reaching a little too far with that i i just think that these are well well in mark's defense i was only reaching because i asked him the question i i thought the answer mark gave was very balanced he said the u.s and the media set up the thing that made this possible because i I don't mean operationally i mean ideologically normally a 29 year old girl being killed most decent human beings and let me mention, because I mentioned human a number of times in the show. My approach in this is that there's a lot of intellectual and political content here, but I'm trying to get through to everyone. There was a human being, a 29-year-old woman who had a father and a mother and people that loved her, and there was a person here, because Alex brought that up yesterday, too. I really think, and Alkyl, I think you agree with me. This is a battle of human beings who have human emotions against some bad people who've managed to bury their sense of ethics. Do you agree with me, Alkyl? Oh, definitely. And I, again, like I, I don't, I don't think we're we're getting. I really wish people would hear how the Russian media covers this. And, you know, where Mark would say, oh, I don't know what globalism is. I mean, go listen to the regular mainstream uh, Russian media. When You know, granted, I'm looking at subtitles. I don't, I don't speak Russian. But they know the players, and they, they, underst- they understand, like, it, it's basic. It, they're like, almost, it's almost like a mon, uh, mainstream Alex Jones in the sense that, they they know the players and these the I I just don't I don't think people understand like that act right there of killing somebody's daughter that is that's what they're they're trying to get Russia to overreact to something to, because at this point the it's run its course where you know people have are learning to live with the situation and the outrage against Russia really isn't there all they can do is put more sanctioned, but I, I just don't, it, it, you're, they're losing uh, Western support for this. And you and watch when the, mark my words, watch when the winter rolls around, there is going to be such a backlash against these policies that I, I don't, if you thought the yellow vest and the five-star movement and stuff like that were, or Brexit were big, I don't think Russia, I don't think Europe has any idea what's, what's going to hit them um, come the winter. And 
one one other thing I wanted to talk about was um, Alexander uh, Dugan when he talks about the fourth political theory. Did you know notice that he brought up with Alex Jones traditional? He's a traditionalist and a Christian, and yes, Putin had. Yeah, you, so that I think it's more like a renaissance in a sense, and what what he what he's referring to, and again, people, Americans. I look Gulag uh, Archipelago. That was a big deal when I was going through high school. Like that, this is something you should read. You read, read Alexander Solzhenitsyn. How many Americans know that Vladimir Putin dedicated a statue to the man? He met with him several times in the early two thousands. Well. Let me ask you a broader question for a second, Al Keller. How many Americans know freaking anything true about Russia? You, you know what I'm saying? It, it, it's so infuriating. And, and the feel, people I feel bad for, we, we played a clip yesterday. Liz Truss said she would, she, she's, thinks, thinks it's her job to push a button for nuclear war. And she got applause. The people who plotted for Liz Truss are the people I feel badly for. And Americans are often just as stupid. Americans, who you, you've seen, there's a viral video. Have you seen the new video where they ask people on the beach in Venice that look, look like? All kinds of questions. They, they ask a guy, who's the Queen of England? And the guy has no idea who the Queen of England, what country is she from? That's the question. What country is the Queen of England from? And when I say Americans are stupid, exhibit A. So I think Americans know almost nothing true about Russia. Okay? Go ahead, Al Keller. I got to move on to get to David, but finish up what you're saying. Look, you, you know, you saw you saw the uh, Patriot where uh, they're at the, the ball and, um, you know, they blow up the ammunition on the ship. And uh, General Cornwallis looks at him, and the, the woman thinks that it's fireworks. That's what we're dealing with. That that is the absurdity of the people that are running the West, the people in power. To, to clap for nuclear war, there's no get it. People need to get in their head. There's no world. Once one goes off, they're all going to go off, and there's nothing left. With the world, you you won't want to survive a, a nuclear war. Life as you know it is over. Yeah, no, no, and and this is a danger we're in right now. But I got to go, Al Keller. Great call as usual, and thanks again for that suggestion for the Alex Jones interview with Alexander Dugan that we played. It's in in its entirety yesterday, and so go back and listen to that show. If you not listen to it, it, is a revelation. David is on the line two zero two five two one thirteen twenty. David from New York, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hi, yes. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Trump the campaigner versus Trump the president. Uh, the, the way, as I see it, the way Trump won such a loyal base is uh, the, per- the perception on the part of uh, the people that, became, that ended up in his base that Trump would uh, go against the deep state and uh, break up the establishment. Uh, but then look, look at what he did as president. Did, did, he, did he drain the swamp? Did he... Did he Break up the deep state? Not even close. Uh, he appointed people. Look at look at who he appointed. He appointed people like Bolton, Pompeo. He, he went with. He stayed with Fauci, Mnuchin. Uh, so, as I see it, either Trump is a fraud or or his judgment is, is abysmal. What do you think? That's my comment. I think that's a false alternative. 
start with what is the least putting a motive on him. Saying he's a fraud, for instance, I'd have to have some proof that a fraud implies that he understands what happened and is consciously choosing to do something. I think Trump is facing a system in liberalism that is very, very good at propaganda. And there's been 80 years of propaganda. And the people who've been in government so far go along with the Western liberal narrative by definition. And Trump came in from the outside. He was not a political person who came in from the outside. And going up against that system is hard. So I think that he's been taken advantage of. David, let me play a clip for you. This is Ron DeSantis from Florida. And I pull this clip because I think I like a lot of stuff about Ron DeSantis. But do I think Ron DeSantis really gets what's going on? Absolutely not. I don't think Ron DeSantis gets what's going on. And there's a variety of reasons for that. But let's play the DeSantis clip. This is DeSantis at a speech yesterday. Hit it. And I'm just sick of seeing him. I know he says he's going to retire. Someone needs to grab that little elf and chuck him across the Potomac. Now, that's him talking about Anthony Fauci. I think Trump didn't see it. You know, when you're president, a lot of people come in and tell you, "Okay, well, we're going to tell you how this town works, Washington. And so when Fauci came in, it's clearer now who Fauci is than it was at the beginning. That's what I think, David. What do you think? Okay, so David's gone. But David, call back anytime. And I want to hear what you think. But tomorrow, because we're almost out of time. Now, the second clip I want to get to is, okay, Joe Biden's student debt relief proposal. The numbers are coming out now. It's going to cost about $300 million. And that completely wipes out the inflation part. And the thing that he's saying now is it's not perfect, but it provides some breathing room for Americans. No, it provides more inflation for all Americans. So some people will save $10,000. By the way, not get $10,000, but save $10,000. In other words, they won't have to spend that money. Fine. But what is going on is the, uh, the cost of it to all Americans to the economy is now being calculated. And Biden's response is typical. Let's hear that clip from Joe Biden talking about how good this is going to be for people. Hit it. About a third of the borrowers have debt but no degree. And worse, debt and no degree. The burden is especially heavy on black and Hispanic borrowers who on average have less family wealth to pay for it. There's no, they don't own their homes to borrow against to be able to pay for college. So, by the way, some white people don't own their own homes and have to pay for college too. So Joe Biden, by making this about race once again, that's the only card he has. Uh, One thing I did last night with Danny, my girlfriend, we watched Rod Occupy Unmasked. That's a film directed by Steve Bannon and starring Andrew Breitbart and me uh, about the Occupy movement. Now, Rod, I know you've seen it before, but when was the last time you watched 
Occupy our mask. Ooh, maybe 2017. So a long time ago, Lee, a long time ago. So it was the same for me, but Dan, Danny wanted to see it because I'm in it, of course. And uh, so I showed it to her. Do you know what struck me? We really predicted the next 10 years. Occupy Wall Street set the pace for the next 10 years, the last 10 years of wokeness, of violence in the streets. And do you agree that the Occupy Wall Street movement really set the tone for what we've seen in the last decade? Right. Yeah, but I would uh, I would definitely agree with that, Lee. And then, you know, even back then, if you think about it, uh, you know, a lot of people didn't would have took wouldn't have took you seriously. Like, ah, yeah, you know, you know, this isn't going to last. But it's done worse than last. It's done uh, irreparable harm. And uh, so, yeah, no, I agree with you. No, and, and I don't agree with everything in the film. There's a part about in the third act where they spend a lot of time going after communism. And again, I still have criticisms of communism, but I think they're too broad. And Alexander Dugan's fourth political theories help me understand my thinking on that. But overall, I think we exposed a lot of stuff that was very important and prescient. Now, I want to get to one more clip. Wait, who who'd you say is online? Command Central, Ingrid? Okay, so let me get to Ingrid first before I play in fact, I think we'll save the clip for when Tom Nichols is on. So 202-521-1320, Ingrid from D.C., what's on your mind? Thank you. Hi. There is uh, a film that came out, I think, just the end of last year, and it's about Julian Assange. I may have the title a little bit wrong, but it's The War on Journalism, The Case Against Julian Assange. And in it... Um, there is a clip of Donald Trump saying that he thinks that uh, Julie, there, sh there should be um, execution, that it's treason what Julian Assange did. And I think this was before he ran for president. Um, I'm not positive of that. But anyway, as far as cleaning out... The swamp. When you look at listen to that, I didn't hear the whole thing, but the the interview with Dugan and Alex Jones. My main feeling from that was that it was just really sad to hear this, to hear Dugan and whether he really actually thought had that high hope for for Trump, or whether he was just trying to play up to. Uh, Alex's audience and and to Trump himself somehow and and to hear Alex trying to seem rational and but talking about how we should get together with all the other countries and we shouldn't be at war with Russia but um that should be so that we could unite against and he didn't name them but I think he meant China so the whole thing to me was really just immensely immensely sad because he had some faith in Trump, I think a lot of people, everyone who voted for him, obviously, thought he could make change. And I think it was rational to think there could be. I think there was rational to think there could be change. Rod, do you agree with that? Do you think that it's not insane to think at the beginning that there's a possibility of change in Donald Trump? 
But no, uh, I, I, um, I was one of those people, Lee, and I thought uh, he was going to be able to, even if he did something to just like, you know, blow up the FBI or uh, do something that, you know, not a typical politician would do. That's what I wanted him to do. You know, go after the spying, uh, the spy gate against him from from Obama. But he didn't do that. So, but I did have that hope. And uh, at that time in 2017, I uh, agreed with everything uh, Dugan was saying because you know, you know, we we do need unity, and right now we're so far from that. Yes, and and I think that at the time, and you know, I think think that Alex being you can't be suicidal all the time and politics is very depressing so at some point you need some hope but there's a point at which that's why i stopped my support for trump when Assange was taken out of the embassy and but a lot of people remained hopeful right up to till trump left office that he would pardon assange and i still think there was some hope that trump would a lot of people had, you know, Sarah Palin's talked about this. At one point, she was against Assange. Then she looked into it more. So it's conceivable to me that at one point, hearing the case against Assange from the right initially, that Trump would think this Assange guy's not a good guy. Then I think Trump looked into it more and started to see the good things. But then there's so much pressure on him from people in his administration, like Pompeo, that I think it killed that. But I, I never, you know, I, I think you can criticize someone for being hopeful too long. There's a point at which you should give up hope. But there's a point at which I think it's valid to have hope. So, Ingrid, are you still there? What do you think about that? Well, I'm glad that Mark Swoboda pointed out, I think, to some extent that Dugan was not particularly well-known or admired in in Russia, and that this admiration for him was some kind of a concoction of, of the West, and as it, I guess as is the demonization of him. I, I don't know. Well, let me clarify my thoughts on that. Thanks, Ingrid. Great call, as usual. Rod, you know Jordan Peterson, right? The Canadian uh, author yes. and philosopher. And yeah, now, that... yes. Now, now Jordan Peterson. I'm going to use an example of. Uh, I'm going to compare Dugan with Jordan Peterson in the following way. Jordan Peterson is an academic. When he comes out and talks about stuff, he eventually gets into postmodernism and mentions philosophers by name. So. If you were to say that Jordan Peterson is like Dugan, he's like it in that he's an academic philosopher who's had some popular success, but still remains essentially an academic. Do you see what I'm saying? Comparing Peterson, not the content of our ideas, but him as a person. He's a college professor. He's an academic, but he's had some popular success. And I'd say Dugan is like that a public intellectual, but essentially a philosopher. Would you agree? You see my point? Yeah, well, I would say that's the best comparison for uh, mainstream uh, people to think of uh, Jordan Peterson up in Canada. And uh, some people say he was radical. And, you know, just like uh, Mark Slobota pointed out, you know, um, 
Alexander's changed over time. So, but what they still call radical isn't really radical anymore. And, but also their specific political prescriptions are less important to them even than the ideas behind it and sending up something theoretical, right? Sending up a theoretical framework that people can discuss political ideas in. It's not about discussing policy A. So if you were to say Jordan Peterson is Trump's brain, I don't think there's any single policy. You cannot say because Jordan Peterson thinks this, Trump did this policy. But and in the same way, Dugan is not responsible for any Putin's specific policies, but he gives you an intellectual framework to discuss those policies. And uh, I think that's the sense in which Dugan has not been influential on Putin. He didn't prescribe any specific philosophy, uh, sorry, any specific policy, but he does give it an ideological framework to discuss those policies. And there is some agreement on those broad philosophical principles. And I also think that Trump, you know, Trump's not an intellectual. Trump is not an academic. So for Trump, it's all about practical stuff. Would you agree with that, Rod? Yeah, and he can easily be swayed by uh, by masses of uh, celeb- celebrity, I would say. Um, yes. Uh, look at his dealings with uh, Kim Kardashian, who now, well, that's who, that's who, now that I come back to, she's in this uh, promo of this, I think it's Apple TV show with Hillary Clinton and Chelsea Clinton. So, you know, she was with Trump, but now she's with Hillary, you know. And Trump would uh, celebrate that still, like, well, you know, I had uh, Kim Kardashian's endorsement or backing, but I mean, you know, he doesn't really see, he doesn't really see it. And I think that's a great analogy, Rod. Let's take a short break, because Tom Nichols is online, and we'll talk to him about the stuff going on around the country with Soros's DAs, including Larry Krasner in Pennsylvania. Let's take a short break and then come back and talk to writer and author Tom Nichols on The Backstory. Backstory and on 105.5 FM, AM 1390. Joining us now, great friend of the show, the writer and author, Tom Nichols. Hey, Tom, how you doing? Hey, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. I, I'm okay. So, broadly speaking, we've we talked about Larry Krasner many times. He was he got into office because Soros adopted a strategy of investing in DA's races around the country. Now. Some governors and legislatures, apparently, are fighting back against Soros. In Florida, we've seen Ron DeSantis move to fire the Soros-funded DA down there. But I noticed the DA did not just pack up his desk and go home. He's fighting back against that. And in Pennsylvania, we've got the legislature looking to Larry Krasner, and Krasner they issued a subpoena. Now, normally when someone gets a subpoena, 
you comply with it, but not Krasner. Krasner said he does not want anything to do with the subpoena because he does not recognize the Pennsylvania legislature's, uh, he's not recognized this as a legitimate investigation. Do I essentially have that right, Tom? Yes, yes, uh, you do have it right. I mean, you uh, you mentioned DeSantis in Florida, and that's ironic because I just spent eight days in Florida where everybody, they're all trying to kill one another on the highways there. And, in fact, when I was there the same day that we were taking a road trip, those five girls were killed when a driver rammed into the side of their car. And, you know, I, I was also, uh, I understand that Christ won the uh, Democratic uh, primary for governor, and when I saw him on TV, it, he he looks like a corporate walking corpse. I mean, he you know like a suntanned corpse. But anyway, this is a side observation. Now, that that's a good description of, of Charlie Christ. A very scary man. Uh, uh, brilliant veneers, though. When he smiles, you get all of these false teeth that are just brilliant, and uh, you know. So anyway, and, and he's got talk show host hair. His hair is very unusual. It's it's quaffed. And it's, it, Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It's very scary. But as as to your question about about Chrysler, I mean, I'm not surprised about his reaction. And of course, he's going to stick his heels in the mud and not recognize this uh, sub uh, this. Uh, investigate into his office, but but what I found kind of interesting was the fact that there were three or four Democrats, I think, that signed onto this thing, and two or three are from Philadelphia. I thought, what brave souls! But then I thought, only two or three after all of these years of complaints about Larry Krasner in this city, um, and. Also, what I think is happening in Pennsylvania now is that the Krasner effect is beginning to be manifested in the uh, candidacy of John Fetterman, who is running for the Senate here. He basically has a Krasner DA's worldview on the criminal justice system, and he wants to bring that to the entire state. And what I find really depressing is that he's ahead in the polls by... I don't know, 15, 16 percent. Uh, I realize we're a while before November, but um, I was just thinking this morning, how can Pennsylvanians be so stupid? Just absolutely stupid. That's they're, uh, the first things I thought of. Well, also, I'm going to blame Dr. Oz to some extent because he's the Republican who's running against Fetterman. I think when you, Dr. Oz, it's fair to say, Launch his latest strategy is to attack John Fetterman for having had a couple of strokes. It seems to me, and that seems to me to be an extraordinarily dumb political attack because everybody knows somebody who's had strokes and it engenders sympathy. And do you agree with me that Dr. Oz's attack on his health is a mistake politically? I, I think that, that you can't go there. I, I, I think that's that's a line that 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 no one should be able to cross. And but um, by the same token, I mean this isn't quite in the same league. It's 
it's deplorable because one cannot help getting a stroke. I mean, anybody could get a stroke. Oz could get a stroke three weeks from now. And so no one is immune. Uh, nobody is immortal. So, uh, but, but I mean, Fetterman. That's what my neurologist told me, by the way, because, of course, I've had a lot of strokes. But my neurologist said last time I was in, he said, we don't know what you could have another stroke, you know, and it's unpredictable. And there's no way of telling and there's no way of stopping it in a sense. So so I'm just affirming what you're saying. Go ahead. It's uh, like that 37-year-old bicycle champion who just died of a massive heart attack and when he was in bed with his wife uh, the other day. Just, you know, 37 years old, nothing wrong, just out of nowhere. Um, But getting back to Fetterman, though, I mean, he has criticized Oz for owning 10 homes. And so, I mean, as you know, it gets pretty petty in the uh, political arena. Um, You know, you can can go back and forth with this badminton ball. So so what what I'll say, though, is... Attacking him for having Ted Holmes, I don't think it's relevant, but I I don't think it's crazy that that attack, because a lot of people would think to themselves that they know who Dr. Oz is. And hearing that, the average person thinks I'm barely having one home. Right. And so I think it's a bad attack, but not crazy the way I think Dr. Oz attacking Betterman for his health. Let's play the clip first. It's true. I want to play this clip. This is John Fetterman talking about Dr. Oz attacking him for his health over a couple strokes. Hit it. And you can count on us to eliminate the filibuster if you come out and step with us. We will be able to stand with you in D.C. I gave away the lieutenant governor governor in Pennsylvania, the only lieutenant governor in the history to do that. And let's, let's get some stuff done for America. Who would ever think that I would be the normal, the normal one in the race here? You know, with that. And so there's John Fetterman talking about it. And, you know, when I listen to him, I'm, of course, I feel... Empathy and sympathy for him. And I also hear somewhat of what I hear in my own speech. It is a struggle for me sometimes to get through a sentence. And it is actual effort. And before my stroke, it was non effort. I'd think something and I'd say it. But now, trying to get through sentences sometimes is difficult. And that's what I'm hearing in his speech. But he sounds pretty good to me. And I didn't. I didn't. I didn't really hear any untoward uh, tweaks that made me like stand back or anything. Um, yeah. Um, maybe I. Maybe I hear it. A lot of times I'll talk to people and say, "You sound good to me," and yeah. because I'm because I'm me, mm. I I I know the difference between what I wanted it to sound like and what I actually sound like. So, Fetterman. Uh. My guess is he probably hears it. He probably hears he's he does not have the same speech that he used to have. But I I, I picked up on it, Tom. I believe you'd miss it, and, and most people would. So go ahead. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, certainly Fetterman Oz did not have to stoop to that. He's got enough ammunition. 
here we have like Fetterman. I mean, lived with his parents until he was fifty, and and I think he was supported by them until he was fifty. I mean, this is this is out of a. I mean, it, it's it's like not even believable. Um, so, I mean, there are just so many other issues. Um, you know, Fetterman's call for the the complete legalization of like weed years ago. It's it's like you know, uh, and with a kind of a come what may attitude towards it. Um, so I don't know. Oz had a lot of other stuff to concentrate on. He didn't have to. He didn't have to go there. Yeah, and I think it's a it's a mistake because you don't want to make your po- opponent relatable. Does that make sense? You don't if you can keep the candidate from being someone voters identify with. For instance, most people don't live with their parents till they're fifty. That's a a valid strategy to me because it makes them unrelatable. What kind of guy is this? But strokes, sorry, it's relatable to people. Tom, yeah, because we're all we're all in the same humanity boat, and we're all subject to anything at any second. And so, you know, you better be nice to, you better not tempt the fates, and you better you better be kind, and you better not go there. It's just good karma for now. So, uh, what a foolish thing. Fifteen points is pretty big. I don't see any way Oz. He's going to be able to pull this off. Do you? Well, uh, he may gain some points, but uh, and I don't know why he can't pull it off. I don't think it's because of this issue. I don't think this this issue is going to be the catalyst that's going to make Fetterman win. I I just think that at Pennsylvania, its political state of mind, it, it's just getting bluer and bluer and. Of the cities and his like, you know, he's got some radical positions, and but um, Fetterman is in keeping with Josh Shapiro. I think he'll be the next governor, and I, I think basically, um, you know, I don't know what it is about Oz. I didn't know much about him, only that he came to Philadelphia once to try to help break up a homeless camp near the railroad tracks in Kensington, and he got a lot of PR here when he did that. But other than that, he was just another Hollywood celebrity doctor or whatever. And, uh, you know, they all kind of blend into the same person, these these ultra-wealthy uh, people who are always before the camera. It's, it's hard to see them as real individuals. They're just like like watching Good Morning America over and over again. They're not even real people. I think at least what what Fetterman has going for him, he's like genuine. You like look at that face. That face has seen, even though he lived with his parents until he was 50, it's seen a lot of life and it's seen, seen some kind of struggle. And I mean, just his size. And I think people can relate to... Uh, to the um, the so-called uh, parts that don't align themselves very well, you know, um, he has humanity. Oz comes across as this as the slickster, kind of like Charlie Crist in Florida. He's got that same slickness, and you know, there's an arrogance that goes with that slickness too, that I think a lot of people feel in their soul, and they just don't like. 
Now, I've been thinking somewhat optimistically lately because I think that people not, by the way, I'm not short term optimistic. I'm long term optimistic because I'm seeing increasingly candidates like Carrie Lake, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Bowart, some of who are already elected. But I'm seeing candidates who are new generation Republicans, and there's more and more of them. And I think people need to realize that political change necessarily takes a while. It does not happen in one election cycle. Sometimes you need 10 years or 20 years to get someone who's in office, like Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell is not going to lose the first time someone runs against him because he has such name recognition. And most people don't pay attention. But do you feel at all hopeful that the GOP will look different in a few years? You know, I, I'm, I'm with the GOP on most cultural issues, but, but sometimes I deviate it. I, I, I deviate when it comes to economy and issues like Social Security and Medicare and, you know, taxation. And, and so I, I think that the GOP could do better in, um, I don't know, thinking of the needs of poor people a little more without sacrificing their view on cultural issues. Um, but this impression that most people have that the Republicans are for the wealthy, I think that's, that still holds strong in many, many quarters. And so they don't even yeah. listen to the GOP when they talk about critical race theory, for instance, because uh, if, they're, if they're for cutting like Medicare, who wants a party that's going to cut Medicare? That affects your life. And so... So what if if they say that there are like seventy two genders? Um, I want my check. I want I uh, want to be able to buy food. I want decent health care. And this is what the GOP has to has to do to get its house in order. I think. And and Tom, so what do you think of that about Biden's new proposal to give up to twenty thousand uh, dollars relief from school debt? What do you think that's a, a pro people policy or do you think that's another Biden disaster in the making? I think I think it's another Biden disaster in the in the making. I think that it it makes a fool out of all those students who worked hard and gave a portion of their salaries for like years to pay back that debt and all of a sudden with the wave of a magic wand, um, uh, it's all over. Um, everything is forgiven. And uh, now I don't know what the specifics are regarding Biden's plan, so I can't talk about that. But if there aren't specifics that address this, then then I definitely think it's a losing thing, and and history will will point to it with thumbs down. And well, and it's apparently going to cost as much as all the inflation uh, legislation that Biden finally got passed through Congress lately. Apparently, he's with the, that one proposal to pay back, uh, give give some... Let me talk about the proposals specifically. Yeah. It's only for people who make under 125000 Now, it's a pretty high barrier. 
But yeah, one hundred twenty-five thousand. If you, so, apparently, if you got uh, your medical degree or your legal degree, if that's the degree you got, you're not getting anything back. So some people, you know, who basket weaving or feminist medieval literature or whatever, they'll be able to get the 10, 10 grand back. But that's what, what this is, Tom. So, well, I mean, that's, uh, I don't know. It, it sounds like a committee was picking through the haystack and, and just kind of, I mean, you know, trying to, trying to satisfy everyone with this little bit of uh, buffet offerings. I don't know. Uh, but um, I, I, I mean, uh, I, do I think that education in this country is too expensive? Yeah, so is um, health care. And, I mean, both of these have to be addressed at some point. Uh, so, uh, But I don't think this is the way to address the cost of education in the United States with uh, Biden's plan. I mean, it, it's kind of uh, – he's able to to talk about it, but it doesn't really address it. It doesn't fix it. Well, I'm seeing – Seeing even some Democrats today are saying the day after it was announced, they think this could cost Biden votes and could cost Democrats votes because they don't care about all they care about right now is the midterms that are coming up in November. And they think that Biden's proposal could actually hurt Democrats in some way. And I tend to agree not taking a position, just saying I think a lot of people are going to be pissed off that they don't get the money back because they pay their loans back. Does that make sense? Yeah, of course. I mean, this is this is why the people who paid their loans back, um, they are going to feel burned and betrayed, and they're going to feel foolish because at the time they did the right thing. And now, you know, you have this voice in their head that might be telling them, you should have waited a little longer. You should have been delinquent on these loans. You could have, like, come out on top. Um, so what what kind of message does this send? Uh, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a desperate pitch by Biden and has everything to do with the midterms and the next election cycle. Um, so, and it's pretty uh, disgusting because they, I mean, what won't they do? Uh, and it, it just, uh, I don't know. Well, now you talked about you're in Florida. One thing they'll do is obviously put a raid on Mar-a-Lago. What was your take on that, Tom? What was your take on the raid on Mar-a-Lago? On Donald Trump. Yeah, we were we were gonna like ride by there. It was like forty minutes from like where we were, and but we didn't have the time. Uh, I thought that it was, um, it, I mean, it, it was both political and uh, you know what they claimed it was. But but you can't separate it. I mean, of course, it was it was all part of uh, the Trump derangement syndrome gone ballistic. It was like a hydrogen bomb, one of the last-ditch efforts, uh, because the information was so confusing. A president can declassify anything before he leaves office. What he had was all declassified. That's what one of his attorneys said. And then the next day, you would get another report. Some of it was, was not declassified. 
and the story kept changing. Um, and then, of course, the infamous story of them going into the former First Lady's clothes closet as if they were checking for Victoria's secret delicacies or something, which seemed overkill and pretty despicable. Um, well, in fairness, Tom, they may have been seeking Victoria's top secret. I, Go ahead. Absolutely. Well, that's a good spin on it. That's a good spin. It's a, dumb, that it's a dumb pun, but I'm known for them. <laughs> yeah. But, um... So... Yeah, go ahead, Tom. Oh, no, I was just trying to draw a comparison with gypsies putting dollar bills in the cleavage of their of their blouses, hiding secrets down there. So, but, but, but I don't know. I mean, I, I, I thought it was like a rape. Um, I really, I compared it to a rape in my notes and, and, uh, and I hope that, that this can be sorted out and that, uh, uh frankly, I think that nothing is going to come of it. I think that, that Trump is going to ride this wave and there are going to be no indictments or anything. Nothing will come of this thing. Nothing. And will people have a memory? Will they blame the Democrats? No. I mean, the public, the public memory gets shorter and shorter by the minute. It's like there's something in the water now. It's like anything could happen, and people have just learned to accept it, and um, it doesn't matter. What do you think, Lee? I mean, do you think do you think anything will come of this? Well, no, well, so I think the thing that's come of it already is I, I, you use the term rape, and I, I tell you what you mean. I I would put it. I don't disagree with that, but I think it, it's an attempt to publicly humiliate Trump, to you know dress him down, and I think it's accomplished what they wanted to accomplish. It got a ton of media. And putting out these fake stories and making Trump seem suspicious, like he was up to something. And I think that's been achieved. And for the people who hate Trump, that uh, bolsters their opinion. But for the people who don't hate Trump, it's getting getting nowhere. So it's essentially— Very astute. It does add to the whole mystery, Trump is evil spin. And though nothing may come of it, the— um, all of the accusations in this high degree official form just builds that up uh, tremendously. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what we'll hear for, for months and years now is that Trump had nuclear secrets at Mar-a-Lago. That's what we'll hear. Yeah. And they get to repeat that over and over again because the media is not held accountable in any way. And they never are accountable, since they're not held accountable. But, Tom, what do you think? Uh, the legacy media has always been the problem. It's been a problem for, I don't know, how many years now? Fifteen? And um, I don't know when it went off the boards, how many how many years ago. But um, um, you, you, can't, you can't trust anything. There's an agenda. That there are things that they follow, and... Um, Facts don't mean, facts don't mean anything. So I tell people now, now, watch the evening. Now, how dangerous is is that idea, Tom? The idea that people don't trust the media anymore, and I think it's what they don't they don't care the people who are posting these narratives. 
the narrative-driven media, people don't trust it. They've done polls. Very few people trust them. And I think that's very dangerous to democracy in general. What do you think, Tom? Um, and in and, the long term, it is absolutely deadly. Because you remember what the media was like during this Russian collusion thing. I mean, it, it was that drumbeat would just not let up, and we all know where that led. There was no Russian collusion at all, but yet, but they still, but they still talk about it. And so, but we live in a completely different world where, I mean, it's Orwellian. I mean, I hate to say that it's been said so many times. Where if you say something often enough, it becomes truth, and so you you can say any lie and just keep repeating it. And uh, it becomes a new kind of fact. But uh, we're in trouble without a media that we can trust. That's why people are are kind of aligning themselves with media outlets that, for one reason or another, they feel that they can they can identify with. And there's with that too. Um, that becomes like uh, church doctrine, and uh, you know, uh, there's not always. <laughs> truth all the time with with one outlet right so do you think this because uh, i've been thinking lately that that problem is inherent in democracy what i mean by that is when you're trying to appeal to the most number of people you're not trying to appeal to the smartest people because everybody votes one of those guys in that video who doesn't know who the queen of england is, is from you see a viral video lately, and they ask a guy, where's the Queen of England from? And he had no idea. But that guy has a vote that's just as valid as the vote of the smartest person you've ever, ever met. So I'm suggesting that increasingly I'm seeing the problem inherent in democracy, which is dumb, uninformed people have a vote that's as valid as someone who and I don't have a solution for this. I'm not saying there should be some sort of test or something. I'm saying maybe it's a problem just inherent in democracy. But what do you think of that idea that democracy might have some problems that, that are inherent in it, Tom? Yeah, I, I, but what that reminds me of is that the word uh, democracy is is used by both sides regarding the coming midterms. Uh, democracy is under threat. I mean, I was listening to some of MSNBC when I was away and, and CNN, and that's all you heard. There were these talk shows. Democracy is under threat. And and Tom, Tom, we're way out of time. Thanks again for coming on. Fantastic conversation. Always love talking to Tom Nichols. Thanks again to Tom Nichols and to Mark Slobodar for the first hour. We'll be back tomorrow with the best damn talk show in the world. The anti-globalist, anti-New World Order talk show. I'm Lee Stranahan. We'll see you tomorrow on The Backstory.